Hey, Scott Jennings here, host of Flyover Country. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. I'm really excited for you to, to listen to today's show because we have a great interview with an author. I met this guy just a few weeks ago, but I was so impressed with him and impressed with his book that I wanted to bring uh, him to you. His name is Jeff Nussbaum. He is a professional speechwriter. Now, you may be surprised to learn he's a professional speechwriter for Democrats. He's written for Joe Biden, Al Gore, Tom Daschle. He also does a lot of corporate speech writing, um, and he teaches at American University as well. But he has written a book called Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. And he handed me a copy of this book in a CNN green room a few weeks ago, and I have not been able to put it down. Essentially, what he does is he goes through these moments in history where a major event was happening, and there was a speech that was written but it was never delivered for some reason. Either the speaker had a change of heart at the last minute, the person died, uh, you know, some other uh, outside intervention occurred that caused the speech not to be given. And so when you read through this book, whether you're reading about John Lewis's ungiven speech at the March on Washington in 1963, or John F. Kennedy's speech that he was supposed to give in Dallas, uh, although he was assassinated, or Richard Nixon's speech where he was going to refuse to resign you go through a lot of these speeches and you just find this fascinating journey into a alternate reality of, uh, of American history. You also find out in this book really a lot about the speech writing process. If you care about politics and you care about sort of public communications and you're a student of this the way I am, it's really fascinating to see a guy like Jeff Nussbaum, who's a pro at this, take you through the speech writing process and how it worked uh, for several people that you've definitely heard of. Uh, and, and how they got from A to B uh, or from start to finish on, on a final product. So it's really interesting if you care about public communications and speech writing. It's really interesting if you think about what if or what might have been in American history. And it is brought in a very, very readable and compelling way. The book is called Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. And I am told that although the book itself, to read it, is great, the better way to consume this book is to get the audio version. I talked to Jeff about this, and apparently what they've done is is they have reading of, of what Jeff wrote, and then they have actors who are portraying the people that they talk about in the book and reading the speeches that were undelivered. It's, apparently, it's a very fascinating audio presentation. Undelivered, the never heard speeches that would have rewritten history. The author coming up next on Flyover Country is Jeff Nussbaum. Here we go. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. All right, thanks for being with us on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. We're glad to have special guest Jeff Nussbaum in this week, and I told you all about Jeff when we started the show today. I met Jeff, I met you in a green room at CNN just a few weeks ago. Yes. And, um, yes. and the, the producers decided that it would be a great idea if they put us uh, opposite each other at a table so we could rip each other's faces off. And we did we did oblige for a few seconds. But I was so impressed with you <laughs> and so impressed with your book that I wanted to have you on the show because I think the topic that you have tackled here in this book is really fascinating for people who are uh, political junkies like us. So, Jeff, thanks for being with us on Flower Country. It's a pleasure to be here. And of course, although we met in that green room at CNN, I had known of you before because I had seen your beautiful writing about your hometown. So, 
Well, thank you for saying that. And I and I want to talk about that, actually, because part of your most recent experience as a writer has been in serving the current president of the United States, Joe Biden. You've been a speechwriter for a lot of politicians. I guess you wrote for Biden when he was vice president. You wrote for Vice President Al Gore. You wrote for Tom Daschle when he was Senate Majority Leader. But you you did spend some time here in the first year and a half working in the West Wing for, for Biden. Is that right? That is true. And now that we've turned off three quarters of your listeners. Um, but yes, I, I, I've dropped in and out of politics throughout my career. Um, I started as a speechwriter for, for Al Gore. And in fact, it was Gore's uh, election night speeches that went undelivered that became the the seed of the idea for the book because I was left holding three speeches that didn't get given that night. Um, but yes, I'd been in speech writing and democratic politics for a long time. And and for a while, I'd written for Gore, who's vice president, Biden is vice president, Tom Daschle had been minority leader. I said, my career is an object lesson in how to get almost to the top. Um, but then, you know, Daschle got majority leader and Joe Biden did get himself elected president. And in working for for uh, President Biden this time around, as you mentioned, you you actually made a, a trip out to flyover country. You you came to Kentucky uh, when uh, the president visited Dawson Springs in West Kentucky after the terrible tornadoes of last December. And you all had some some conversations about uh, something I had written about Dawson Springs, I think, on on Air Force One. I was just curious when you came out here with the president and and you were putting together some of his language for that trip. Just what what were your uh, what were your observations when you all hit the ground? When I when I first drove into it the day after it, it happened, I, I was certainly stunned and, and devastated by it. But, but having not been out there before, what were your impressions? Yeah, it's nothing you can prepare for. I mean, you can write nice words, you can find Bible verses, but until you're there and you see, first of all, when you see, in particular Dawson Springs, when you're driving in, you know, everyone is out grilling food for everyone else because any food that didn't get lost, they can't refrigerate it. And so there's this incredible sense of, of community on one hand. And on the other hand, you drive by stoops where there's no house left behind the stoop anymore. And you just see families with those thousand yard vacant stairs. And then, and then, and then finally, um, seeing all the Christmas decorations strewn on the ground. And you just realize these are families' lives torn open and all of us are traveling, we're, we're just sobbing. And, and so, you know, as a writer, as a speech writer, you can try to prepare, you can look at pictures, you can read up on the history of the town as, as you wrote so beautifully, but it's not till you see it that you realize, I mean, words may be my business, but words can't suffice in moments like that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's well put. That that, that captures a, a little bit of what I thought when I drove into town after it happened. Um, because you 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 just you're unprepared for a scene, and for me, having grown up there, the uh, just the landscape was totally different. You know, the vegetation is ripped up. You know, when yeah. you take away the trees and you take away the houses and you take away everything that your mind is 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 preparing to see, uh, it, it's jarring. And uh, and then you realize all these people's lives are, are ripped open and on display. Everything they'd ever had is laying on the street or in the on the ground, and it's. Um, incredibly sad. I was there just a few days ago. You might be interested in, and uh, the town is clean, cleaned up, cleaning up and rebuilding to some degree and uh, folks are fighting back. So um, it's, it's good to, it's good to hear. And um, it's good to know because when you're there in that moment, you, you're saying all these things about rebuilding, but you look around and you think, how is this going to even be possible? I was surprised actually when I, I was back a few days ago and, you know, when I first went, I, I thought, how could you ever clean all this up? I mean, there's, right. there were just so much, but they they really have worked uh, obviously very hard over the last six months and uh, 
and uh, we'll keep praying for uh, for Western Kentucky and, and everybody affected. Indeed. You, Indeed. Uh, Jeff, are here, uh, and thanks for indulging our, our conversation about that. Uh, you're here, though, to talk about this this great book. You've, you've written this book called Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. And um, and you handed me this book the day we met uh, at CNN a few weeks ago, and I've been uh, reading it and uh, and have just been fascinated by all of these uh, interesting moments in history that you decided to pick out. And, you know, some of them are, are more well-known than others. T- tell me again, um, what, what you just mentioned it a moment ago, right. but what was the, what was the kernel that started this idea that, that turned into the book uh, that, that really made you think, you know, there's something here enough to write a whole book about. Yeah, absolutely. So it, as I said, it started when I was a kid writing speeches for Al Gore. I'm not so much of a kid anymore. And election night, 2000, Gore actually had three speeches prepared. There was a victory, a concession, and then a win the electoral college, but lose the popular vote modification. And as some people remember on election night, Gore gave no speech um, at 4 a.m. You know, the, the campaign chairman came out and said, as long as Florida's undecided, the race goes on. And the irony is I lost those speeches. I can't find them anywhere. I went back, talked to the teleprompter operator to see if she had them. Um, those are gone, but it set me on this quest to say, what are these other moments in history, not just politics, but what are other moments in history where there are two outcomes or more that, that each could have been so close to becoming reality that there was a speech prepared to account for it? And you find them in all sorts of places. You find them in issues of war and peace. You know, um, uh, you, you find them uh, where, where, you know, Kennedy considers airstrikes on Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. You find it where Eisenhower has to imagine D-Day fails. You imagine it where, um, you know, King Edward uh, doesn't want to resign and Mary Wallace Simpson wants to stay on the throne. You find it where President Nixon wants to, quote, stay on the throne and not resign the presidency. So in all these places, I started to see um, what an alternative future could look like. And I found in, in most of them, a draft of the speech that starts us down that path to that alternative history. One of the the speeches that you write about in the book is one that is is on my mind frequently because I've seen the actual cards. I spend uh, some time as a professor at uh, the Kennedy School at Harvard, and uh, I frequently go out and visit the JFK Presidential Library. And a couple of years ago, they had a a uh, an exhibit there in the basement. Uh, and it was uh, in one case, and they had all the cards that Kennedy had for his speech he was going to deliver in Dallas the day he was assassinated. And I, I went and I, I visited that exhibit a few times, and I just, I just stood and stared at those cards because they just, they just even talking about it right now, it sends a, a shiver and a chill up my spine. And, and oh. to think about what he was preparing to say. And I think even one of the cards had a little, had a little it, blood, blood on it. On it. Yeah. It blood and, on and, you, and, and you, and you just, it takes you back to that, that moment in history. And you think about, you know, when he woke up that morning and he put those cards in his jacket and what he was thinking about doing and obviously how American history changed that day. It, it's just a, it's a chilling moment. Talk, talk to me about that particular speech because you made a point uh, when we met uh, a few weeks ago about something that was said in that speech that has some, relevance and salience for today's politics. True. Yeah. And I'll, I'll preface the answer by saying the last chapter of the book is, is one big reason speeches don't get given is the speaker dies. And so the last chapter of the book, I have um, the John F. Kennedy speech, which I'll, I'll talk about just in a second. But I have Pope Pius, who was prepared at the time of his death to disavow Mussolini and fascism. 
I have Albert Einstein, who was about to speak about peace in the Middle East on Israel Independence Day. And I have FDR, who was uh, wanted to project past the end of World War II and say, not just how do we bring this war to an end, but how do we bring an end to the beginnings of all wars? So the last chapter is last words. And Kennedy, some people know this speech and have seen it and, and like you have seen the cards. And to the extent it's remembered, it really is remembered as a foreign policy speech that we have to be the watchmen on the walls of world freedom. And, and this beautiful you know, paraphrase of a Psalm, you know, for as was written long ago, except the Lord keep the, keep the city, the watchman waketh in vain. It, it's really beautiful. But what people don't realize when you make a closer reading of the speech in the context is what Kennedy was also saying is the watchman on the walls for freedom also has to be looking inside the walls. And he was very concerned about the rise of misinformation and disinformation. And in fact, he was prepared to say, um, you know, one of the things I'm concerned about, or as he says, other voices are heard in the land, voices preaching doctrines wholly unrelated to reality. And then later he says, ignorance and misinformation can handicap the progress of a city or a company, but they can handicap this country's security. And so even though it's a foreign policy speech, about 40% of it is devoted to misinformation and disinformation here in the United States. And then when you further look at the context, you know, in Dallas at the time, uh, there's a wonderful book about Dallas of the time. You know, there was the rise of, of people like Edwin Walker, who was a former World War II general, who was a fringe candidate um, for governor um, and had protested admitting James Meredith, um, the, the attempt to integrate the University of Mississippi, and was uh, using a lot of language about, you know, Kennedy's pro-communist, pro-everything. And so it, it really feels very relevant to today about how sort of overheated rhetoric in which we um, misinform about our adversaries can become a real risk. And so Kennedy really wanted to take that head on. And, and it's fascinating to read that now in the context of how divided we've become today. You know, something about um, your book and talking about President Kennedy's words and, and, and thinking about some of these speeches that, that we're discussing is reminds me that it seems like, you know, for, for most of our history, uh, our our leaders put a lot of thought into uh, making sure language was precise. You know, there there was you know you, there was a precision of it. There there was a there was a belief that every word had gravity, every phrase meant something. And it, it feels like lately, just in this profession, the speech writing profession, the public you know communication profession, that that we're looser now. That people don't put as much care into the gravity of each phrase and each word, especially at the, at the highest levels. I mean, some people, you know, have stopped using speeches at all, which actually is, is pretty dangerous when you consider that a president of the United States and his words can can move markets and, and cause, you know, all sorts of unintended consequences. Do you think that's true or is that just our perception based on, you know, the amount of access we have to leaders these days? Yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's part of it. But one of the things I was asked, in, as I've been on the book tour, I was asked, you know, how have speeches changed? And I didn't have a good answer. But as I've thought about it, um, I would, I would add to what you said, that when you look at old speeches of 20 years ago, or a century ago, most speakers were speaking to a much wider audience. And so, you know, they weren't just speaking to partisans. They weren't just speaking to people who only agreed with them. So they were spending a lot more time explaining. 
you know, FDR's fireside chats. Yeah, they were political in a way, but he was explaining, um, you know, you go back even further. And so one of the things I think that has changed that is damaging is it used to be if you were speaking to a broad audience of people, you weren't trying to activate them as much as you were trying to educate them and lead them. And now when leaders speak, even world leaders, they are more likely to be speaking only to supporters and are trying to activate them. And when you're looking to activate, you're going to be more fiery. You're going to be more passionate. You're going to cast opposing arguments in the most negative possible light. And so I think that transition from being leaders who spoke in terms of, of explaining and educating before persuading, as opposed to leaders now, probably spend the vast majority of their time activating. And I think that's where you get a little bit of that, that, that it feels different than it once did. So it may not be as much about less precision, but it's more about who you're speaking to and what you're trying to get them to do. That, that is a, a profound observation and, and perhaps a, a little alarming to the idea that, that our elected leadership is sort of out of the gate. They, they've, I mean, what you're, essentially what you're saying is they've given up on the idea that they could lead people who weren't previously their supporters. And so their only path forward is to activate, you know, the people who, who are with them all the time. And uh, it, 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 I mean, it, that, that observation does explain a, a little bit of our polarization right now, right? Absolutely. And I think it's one of the reasons why we pay so much attention to times of national tragedy, because there are not a ton of moments where everybody listens to a leader. And so national tragedies are these moments where everyone kind of says, at least for a minute, I'm going to put politics aside and see what our leaders have to say. But there are fewer and fewer opportunities for leaders to speak to or even to want to speak to everyone. And so and so that's, as you said, that that is one of the challenges in our politics today. One of the things about your book is that um, you have a few speeches in here that had they been given, it would have dramatically changed the way we would remember uh, the person uh, you're writing about. The first chapter, uh, part one of the book is called Words That Are Too Hot. And the first one on the list is John Lewis on the March on Washington, August 1963. This has gotten some attention uh, as of late. Tell us about that particular speech, what he thought he might do, and then versus what Mr. Lewis actually did. Yeah. So John Lewis, as he's remembered now, you know, over time, as people age, we kind of sand off their rough edges. You know, he's almost a warmer, fuzzier character in history. But you forget at his 20s, at the time of the March on Washington, he was in the fight. You know, he, he had been arrested 20 times. His bus on the Freedom Rides had been burned. Um, and so when it came time for the March on Washington, uh, he actually didn't want to speak. He basically said, like, leave that to the it was run by a lot of establishment figures, the NAACP, the labor unions, AFL-CIO, A. Philip Randolph, who had been sort of a first generation labor activist, civil rights activist. And then his, his advisors, his friends kind of convinced him he had to do it. It was too big a stage. And he said, OK, but if I do it, this isn't going to be a march in Washington. It's going to be a march on Washington. And he literally said, I want to put some sting into it. So he wanted to put some sting into his words. And, and did he ever? I mean, his first draft, he basically said, um, we'll march through the South, the heart of Dixie, the way Sherman did. We'll pursue our own scorched earth policy and burn Jim Crow to the ground. Uh, he wanted to take it to President Kennedy. He said, we can't support your civil rights bill for it is too little and too late. And, and the night before, two nights before, um, Lewis's friends saw that uh, 
the other speakers were putting their speeches out to get some press coverage and they wanted to put Lewis's out too. So they did. And immediately once folks saw what it said, it, it became a problem because also he wanted to say patience, people counsel patience, patience is a dirty and nasty word. That was what he wanted to say. And this was a really delicate dance for the Kennedys and the other leaders because the Catholic church in particular and other religious groups were supporting the march. But, but the, um, but the church basically was going to pull out if this was going to be Lewis's speech. And, and I, part of why I led with this chapter is one of, my, um, one of the exalted agonies of, of my work in the speechwriting world has been running speechwriting for Democratic conventions, which I joke is a, a job in which I get to get yelled at by 190 different people. <laughs> and so on the, in this chapter, like, I saw Lewis, what he wanted to do, how desperately he wanted to deliver a message he didn't think was being delivered. And I saw the organizers basically saying like, please, let's just keep us all on the same page. And ultimately, I found a picture in the archives, this wonderful photo of John Lewis has basically retreated underneath in the corner of the Lincoln Memorial, the back of the Lincoln Memorial. He's sitting next to the statue of Lincoln and he's rewriting his speech and he's doing it not because Martin Luther King asked him to change it, even though Martin Luther King did ask him. Martin Luther King pulled him aside and said, John, this doesn't sound like you. And Lewis said, yeah, but it sounds like us. And by us, he meant sort of the young activist members of the civil rights movement. But it was finally A. Philip Randolph, who was the founder of the whole thing, um, who basically begged him and said, I've waited 22 years for this, John. I've waited all my life. Please don't ruin it. Um, and, and Lewis basically said, how could I say no? It would be like saying no to Mother Teresa. And so Lewis ultimately did tone down his speech. Um, and it was still the, the fieriest and, and angriest of the day, but it, but it wasn't over the top. And, um, and when I look at that chapter, you know, I think, what if the takeaway from the March on Washington hadn't been the dream, but had been John Lewis's nightmare? You know, would it have resonated the same way? Would Kennedy have invited them all to the White House? You know, would progress on the Civil Rights Bill have rolled forward? So you can see how the words, the tenor, if things go a different way, outcomes go a different way. The voice you're listening to on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings there is Jeff Nussbaum. He is a he's an academic. He's a professional speechwriter. He's uh, uh, very involved in democratic politics and writes a lot of speeches for corporate executives as well. And uh, you see him on TV from time to time. He has written an amazing book called Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. And we're talking about that book on the podcast today. You know, the, the Lewis speech that, that you were just describing to me is is interesting because some of the speeches you write about in the book were obviously written by the person who was delivering them. You know, Lewis, you're, you know, rewriting his speech there sitting next to to Lincoln. Um, so he's doing it himself. There's no speech writing team. But some of the speeches you write about including President Nixon's uh, refusal to resign, uh, obviously put a speechwriter in a precarious position. And I was wondering if you might sort of reflect on the Nixon example in particular, but also uh, as you did your research for the book, I'm interested in your observations um, of the speeches and the people who were writing for themselves and of the people who were obviously writing for someone else. Yeah, so this is a great question. I love this because people have said, hey, I heard that Nixon had a speech for the failure of the moon landing. Is that in here? And the answer is no, but I do have um, the speech Nixon had prepared refusing to resign. And my threshold for inclusion in the book was, did the speaker engage with the speech? Did they see it? Did they think about it? Um, did they ha actually have to envision this alternate outcome? So for example, I found in the research for the book, there was a speech prepared for Harry Truman 
basically announcing that the U.S. would not pursue research into the hydrogen bomb, um, basically saying we're going to we're going to call an end to our nuclear research at this level. And, and in reality, he was given the speech and he didn't even look at it. He said, can the Russians do it? His advisor said yes. And he said, then we're doing it, too. And so the speech isn't there because he didn't really think about what it would mean to not pursue the bomb. But but here's a case where uh, Nixon really wanted to hang on and fight. And in the chapter, I talk about the famous checkers speech that, that Nixon gave. You know, again, I talk about our civil rights heroes um, and all our heroes basically almost becoming warmer and fuzzier um, in their old age. Nixon has gone the other way reputationally. Like we see him as sort of dark and sinister and malicious, but we forget the guy got elected because he was able to be incredibly charming. And, mm-hmm. and he had once given a very famous speech called the checkers speech, where he basically appealed to the American people to allow him to stay on the ticket with Eisenhower. And it, and it really was the beginning of our much more confessional brand of politics. It was a speech about his finances, um, how modest his life was. It, it really was the beginning of kind of, you know, uh, our, that our politicians had to be relatable. It was a tremendously relatable speech. And so here he is at the, you know, at, at, with, with crises looming, um, Watergate, you know, burst into full view. And he kind of thinks I can go back to the well, you know, I can, I can convince people again, um, that I should stick around. And his speechwriter, Ray Price, he had wonderful speechwriters. William Sapphire was a speechwriter for him, but it, but in this moment it it was Ray Price. And he sort of didn't think it was a great idea to do it. Um, he thought he actually thought Nixon should go. Um, but he marshaled the best arguments and he kind of marshaled Nixon. And so what the speechwriter did in this case was say, okay, like how does Nixon, uh, often when I write for folks, CEOs, foundation heads, politicians, they say, how do you make it sound like me? And I say, well, I can sound like you by watching YouTube or reading interviews, but really what I want it to do is think like you. And so price really goes to sort of think like Nixon. And what, so what does Nixon think like in moments like this? He, he lays out the evidence. He basically says, um, look, I've heard these tapes that the judge has asked me to turn over and basically says, they don't sound good. doesn't look good for me. But here's, but here's why I think I should fight this out. And he marshals his best arguments. And so in that moment, Price did his job, right? His speech is, I, I joke that speechwriters can be like lawyers. They can argue both sides of the case. But ultimately, um, when, when, uh, when it came, when Nixon ultimately decided to resign, Price included a memo on top of the speech, basically saying, I think you've made the right choice. Um, but in that moment, Nixon marshaled all the arguments he could. He basically said, we had a president assassinated. That was Kennedy. We had one basically drummed out of office. That was Johnson. So, you know, for global continuity, you know, for, for consistency, shouldn't I stay in office, which kind of presaged arguments we heard from folks like Rudy Giuliani after September 11th, when they wanted to stay in office. You know, it's, it's a dangerous thing when leaders begin to think that they are so indispensable um, that the nation and the world need them to stay in place. But, but Nixon put those arguments together and ultimately made the, made the decision not to pursue them. Do you think in this moment, based on your research, that Price, in that case, was more than a speechwriter, that he was something of, of an advisor? Do you think he had an influence on Nixon's decision? I know he praised it, but do you think his, he, he was influential in that case? I don't think he was particularly influential. I think he was still getting 
his marching orders from chief of staff and others. But I do think there are lots of instances where speechwriters are influential. And I take a little digression in the book to talk about uh, Mark Salter, who didn't just write for, for John McCain, but really was an alter ego and helped him think through things like um, not just issues of policy, um, but helped him think through how to write and talk about his fraught relationship with his father. You know, there's sometimes when I'm writing speeches where I feel like the person I'm writing for should be on a couch or I should be invoicing them for, for the hour. There is a therapeutic <laughs> aspect to it. Um, right. And, and so that you, you do see that from time to time. And one of the things you see, you know, sort of Kennedy and earlier is, is that speechwriters are, are kind of policy advisors first, poets second. Um, you know, Sam Rosenman wrote with, you know, who wrote with Roosevelt had been a judge, you know, he really helped think about what the New Deal was. Um, Dick Goodwin with Kennedy and LBJ kind of was the architect of the Great Society as much as he was the author of, of how to talk about it. And, and then Nixon, interestingly, as we have this conversation, basically modeled his Office of Communications after the Madison Avenue ad agencies. And so speechwriters became part of the Office of Communications. And that was the first time kind of the, the chief speechwriters moved across the street from the West Wing into the old executive office building. So I think it's always a better outcome when the writer is someone who is close and an advisor to the speaker, because otherwise it can sound like something that's simply prepared for them. In your own career, uh, as you've written for, for various kinds of people, do, do you find that the ultimate products are better when it is a one-on-one -on -one writing relationship with the, the orator, or do you find it, it often produces a better product when, when in fact there's a team effort? What, what's your, and this may be a personal preference by, by, uh, by leader, but, but what, what's been your experience? I, I, I think it's a, it's some from column A, some from column B. I have enjoyed working with people who like to create an atmosphere where at least initially a lot of ideas are thrown around and debated. And then from that, they kind of take and take a step back and say, okay, this is what I like, what I'm hearing. This is what I don't like. And now I'm going to really narrow it down and, and work on, work on it. So I think a, a, a good writer is someone who knows the speaker well enough to help them say the things only they can say in the ways that only they can say it. But I will also say that anytime you work in a small team, you have blind spots. And so, um, you know, you, you miss things. You, you say, you write things that maybe will be heard differently by a different audience. And so I think it's always good when it's sort of a small group or even a or duo doing the writing, but that there's an openness to outside ideas and outside review. Um, because, you just you just always want to be aware of how what you're saying is going to be perceived. I mean, I even think about uh, a, uh, an, an official I was I was um, writing for, like the Al Smith dinner in New York, right? Which is the archdiocese of uh, of yeah, of New York, a, a big Catholic event, lots of jokes. But the honorifics for the archdiocese leaders were long were wrong because I mean, I'm not Catholic, but it wasn't a Catholic writer and it wasn't a Catholic speech speaker. And so, you know, there was like your holiness, like, the, you know, it, it was just off. Oh, so yeah, you, yeah. Right. Like you always want to like make sure that that the little thing that you get the little things right as well as the big things. 
Um, you're hearing from Jeff Nussbaum today on Flower Country with Scott Jennings. He's written an, an amazing book called Undeliver, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. I've read it and highly encourage you to buy it and read it yourself. If you're a political junkie or uh, uh, interested in how uh, speeches make their way uh, into the hands of uh, politicians, uh, th- this book is definitely for you. Uh, your favorite chapter of this book? You've got a lot of you've got a lot of chapters, a lot of speeches that you've reviewed in here. Uh, all in. What, what was your favorite vignette to write uh, uh, for this, uh, for so, this product? You've yeah, delivered? so I have, a, I have a couple of favorites. I, I spent some time growing up in Boston. In the mid-70s, Boston had a, um, uh, basically a court-ordered busing, uh, uh, school busing crisis. It was to desegregate the schools. And they basically, for those who don't know or don't remember, they basically put, um, they linked up a bunch of different towns to desegregate their schools, but they basically put Roxbury which it was a, uh, you know, uh, essentially the blackest neighborhood of Boston with South Boston, which was the whitest neighborhood of Boston. And, and the students coming from Roxbury to South Boston were met with tremendous violence. I mean, it was a level of ugliness that it's hard to believe was the mid seventies in the United States. Um, bricks were thrown through bus windows. It, the kids were, you know, chanted at by, thousands and thousands of parents, the police, the white police in South Boston, many of whom were from the neighborhoods, um, were basically vilified by their own community. One, one in the aftermath of basically a surge at the buses had a heart attack and died. Kid was stabbed in school. I mean, it was, it, it was bad. And Kevin White, the mayor of Boston, was a progressive guy. He was, he was a Democrat. He was uh, even shortlisted to be vice president. But he basically said, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to integrate the schools. He wrote a state of the city speech where he basically said, I'm going to shut down South Boston High and I'm going to let these parents who are anti-busing, I'm going to have the city throw their support behind them because because he he basically said this is 80 percent unpopular in Boston, 80 percent unpopular. If Boston was a sovereign state, I would be overthrown. And and again, he was for integration. He was he was he was on the right side of the issues. But he basically said, I I can't do this. I can't force my city to do this. And at the 11th hour, he had a change of heart. And he said, you know what? We've seen Nixon resign. This was shortly after Nixon's resignation. We are a nation of laws. And he ended up giving an incredibly powerful speech where he basically said, you may not like it. I may not even like the way we're going about it. But this is the law. And we're going to follow the law. And we're going to suck it up and we're going to do it. And and he then ran for reelection and won. And I mm-hmm. love I love it because it's an example of two things. And I talked to his his chief of staff is still alive. And I talked to his, his chief of staff at the time. And he said. One of the worst things a leader can do is promise their constituents that they're going to fight something or stop or stop something and then be powerless to do it. So part of it was just a good political lesson, which is right. there is something very dangerous about riling up your supporters about an outcome that you know isn't going to come to pass. So I thought that was a very powerful lesson. And the other powerful lesson was that, was that um, and, and the quote that I love that, that, the, that the mayor used um, right when he was basically describing this outcome. And here I'm just, he basically said, there's no odor save death worse than that of a public official, too frightened and fearful to say above a whisper what he honestly believes. And I just love that as, as sort of a statement of what leaders need to do, which is 
Like there is nothing more gross than a weak leader who won't say what they really believe. Um, and, and for those folks who know Boston, one of the historical ironies is that this problem didn't really ever fully resolve itself, but it started to resolve itself when the school board started to become more diverse. But the first two black members elected to the school board, their last names were O'Brien and McGuire. So there is some, <laughs> there's, some, there's some question about how much Boston accidentally moved toward progress when a bunch of people from South Boston voted for O'Brien and McGuire, not expecting what O'Brien and McGuire <laughs> actually looked like. That's a great. Uh, that's a that's a great story. Great great Boston story. You're listening to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Our guest today is Jeff Nussbaum. We're talking about his book Undelivered: The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. Uh, Jeff, you uh, are currently in the private sector. Tell us where, if, if somebody listening to this wanted to find you and have you write for them, where would they find you today? So the the way to find me now is is just go to jeffreynussbaum.com um, and hit the contact button. Um, I have a I have a relationship with a firm um, that I uh, was a partner in called West Wing Writers, where we do speeches for um, CEOs, executives, actors, athletes, foundation heads. Um, but I think JeffreyNussbaum.com is is the best way to go because I've been uh, uh, enjoying my time on book tour, talking to folks like you, Scott, and and doing media. Uh, and then I'm gonna I, no one's gonna be sympathetic to this, but I'm gonna give myself a little vacation before I get back in the game fully. That's fantastic. And and in your bio, I did note um, you co-founded something once called the Humor Cabinet. <laughs> I, I did. And, and are you still and I guess you guys wrote funny speeches for for people who were called upon, you know, in those in those moments. Do you still do some of those or have I, you have you retired the uh, comedy speech writing? I, I haven't fully retired the comedy speech writing because I call comedy a constructive outlet for my political road rage. Um, so this was, it started as mostly, you know, when Washington types are called on to be funny and then, and, and, and as you know, as well as anyone, there's, um, there's like Washington funny and there's actual funny and there's not a, and there's not a huge amount of overlap between the two. So, so the comedy business was a very, very niche, (laughs) niche market, finding that overlap between actual funny, uh, and Washington funny. So in, in Washington, there's people have seen the correspondence dinner and, and, and events like the gridiron and the alfalfa club, but that became a, a subspecialty. And for a long time, I also said it was like the last bastion of true bipartisanship because I, I said, you know, there are Republicans I will happily write for because for me to write a self-deprecating joke for a Republican is just me writing an attack joke about a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the comedy speech I've, I've written a fair number yeah. and, and, and um and in Kentucky we have this this big political oh, event fancy farm, right? fancy farm. Yeah. And and a few years ago I was the MC and the MC is always called upon to do you know 8 to 10 minutes to open and it and it's it's got to be funny. It's got to be that's been the the sort of the thing lately. And so I spent oh gosh, I probably went through 30 drafts of jokes. You know, I wrote, you know, 200 jokes and you know you ended up doing 10 of them and then I ended up consulting with a guy on it and um uh, because I, it, it's hard to do. It's it's hard to write the jokes, but then it's also hard to deliver them. And being funny is not easy. And virtually no one is funny. I mean, the, like the percentage yeah. of us who are, who are capable of it is really small. And everybody and 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 if you're not prepared for it, uh, it can really bomb and and be super flat. Yeah. One of the one of the things I always say is like being funny is serious business. Like it takes a lot of work to be funny. 
Um, and, and fancy farm is, is a great example of that, right? Like, you know, you don't want to hear crickets or if I remember the venue, you don't want to hear like the fans blowing, right? Cause it's like, oh, you know, it's sort of half indoors, right? And right. So if you hear the fans, you know, you're not hearing the crowd. So, um, but, um, but yeah, and, and I'm sure your experience is, is mine too. I feel like there's another book to be written about the jokes that didn't get delivered. Cause like <laughs> the best stuff often ends up on the cutting room floor, but I have found in, in humor, especially uh, discretion is the better part of valor. No, no joke is so good that it's worth uh, ruining a relationship uh, or, or leaving someone really pissed off. Oh, I had I had a lot of those uh, moments because as I was writing that speech, because the you know at, th at that point uh, this was 2016, and so you know the the stage is filled with Republicans, and you're sort of supposed to introduce everybody and. You know, my mentor, Mitch McConnell, is sitting there. You've got Rand Paul sitting there. I mean, you've got all these major figures in your own party and you've got to do something and you can't you can't leave them unscathed. But at the same time, you don't want to <laughs> right. you don't want to go too right. far. It was quite yeah. an experience. Uh, but, yeah. Jeff, before we let you go uh, on Flyover Country, we have a tradition with our guests that we have on. We do a little lightning round and uh, we do short answer or one answer questions uh, uh, in, in rapid fire fashion. So if you're ready. Uh, we'll do the lightning round. Now, you All just right. mentioned you're a Boston guy, so I'm going to start with an easy one. Number one, what is your favorite sports team? Uh, New England Patriots, which will turn off the other 75% of your audience. <laughs> I grew All up right, going to Patriots two. games, yeah. Gotcha. Well, that, right, as we're recording this, by the way, huge sports day for Boston. I guess we yeah. have we have golf, we have the Red Sox, we have the Celtics uh, going on, so yeah. big sports day for Boston indeed, today. Indeed. All right, number two, midterm prediction. Uh Democrats hold the Senate by a thread. Really? Okay. All right. And the House? I um, don't feel so great about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Number three, you've been in the West Wing uh, uh, quite a bit in your career. What is your favorite West Wing memory? Oh, gosh. Uh, I should be better at this. Uh, favorite West Wing memory. Um, the uh, I shouldn't say this, but like the incredible feeling of walking out to Marine One, to the helicopter. Um, yeah. There is just something that feels like uh, like the music from Top Gun should be playing behind you when you do it, <laughs> even if you're the one walking 20 paces behind the president. Uh, number four, who will be the nominees of the Democrat and Republican parties in the 2024 presidential election? 2024. Um, I mean, Joe Biden. <laughs> Joe All Biden. Right. Uh, Nikki Haley. Joe Biden versus Nikki Haley. All right. Number five, what is the worst major political speech you have ever heard in your life? Uh, oh, I mean, other than Clint Eastwood speaking to a chair, um, which <laughs> oh, was... Don't, which, remind, don't remind me of that. <laughs> yeah, which, which I was watching as we were preparing for the Democratic half of, the, of, of, the, of that convention series. Um Oh goodness! What is the worst? I'm sorry, I'm not doing so well with the lightning. Um, no, no, you raised though one of the worst like public communications moments in recent Republican history. I mean, that well, was because well, you know, actually, as the, and you know, the history of that when like no one knew he was going to do that. They had a whole other tech. Well, I guess there's an undelivered Clint Eastwood speech somewhere yeah, because that's actually, not what I he was should, supposed should, to do. I should go looking for that. But actually, th there was there was a, a moment where because the your convention had been shortened by a day, I'll try to keep this answer short. Ann Romney ended up speaking right with Chris Christie and their speeches directly contradicted each other. Um, yeah. Ann Romney talked about the importance of love. And then Chris Christie got up a minute later and talked about the importance of respect over love. 
And so to me, that actually, not because either speech was bad, but because they contrasted so much, I'm going to give that my, my worst political speech award. All right. Number six, what's the best major political speech you've ever heard, but that you didn't write? Um, well, I didn't write any of the greats. So, um, uh, I, I think that, um, I thought that Obama in 2004 at the convention was just electrifying um, and it and so much better than I thought it was going to be having looked at it on the page. Final question. Who is the best orator today in American politics? The best orator today in American politics. Let me ask um, two questions. Yeah. Who's the best orator, but who's and then maybe another way to ask it, who's the most effective? Because they might be two different things. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I get asked, I'm sorry, I'm not doing your lightning round, but, you know, people inevitably at these book tours ask me, like, did Trump have speechwriters? And I basically say, like, instead of criticizing him, let's look at what he did that worked. And one of his gifts was that he spoke in incredibly concrete terms. He talked about a swamp. Democrats talked about ethics and integrity. He talked about a wall. Democrats talked about humane and border security. So, like, I think his genius was he spoke in very, very concrete terms. Um, Best order, like when I worked in the Senate, I, for whatever reason, I would like listen to Dick Durbin read the phone book. I was I was surprised by how much I enjoyed listening to him. Um, and uh, your view, your listeners don't get to see the look on your face, but you're looking at me with a, a similar look of a similar oh, look of, of of incredulity. This went in a crazy direction, but go on. <laughs> no, no, no. So I. I I, I mean, I, so, but I did love, I loved the the prairie populists who were around in the Senate when I came into the Senate, the, the Byron yep. Dorgans and Tom Daschles. I thought that they actually spoke in a way that, that I wish more people would speak in. You know, I guess he's not technically from American politics, although he does comment a lot on politics. I think maybe the most effective public speaker in America today might be Dave Chappelle. I don't know if you follow Dave a lot, but, but it, and I've seen him in person and what he does on that stage is incredibly effective, and and he is the, the talent level of that guy is really unbelievable. Well, I mean, great comedy at the end of the day is truth, right? Or the, the there's two sayings about comedy, right? Like comedy is truth, and the other is comedy is tragedy plus time. And to the extent that comedians can give us truths or give us a means to deal with with tragedy or difficulty, I think they are some of our most effective social commentary commentators, and 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 have been through history. Jeff Nussbaum, thank you for being on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. You are a professor of public communications at American University. You've been a speechwriter for Joe Biden, Al Gore, Tom Daschle. You've been a corporate speechwriter. You've written funny speeches. And because uh, the reason you're on the show today is because you've written a book called Undelivered, the never heard speeches that would have rewritten history. I assume if you go on Amazon or go to your favorite bookstore, this thing is available. You will find it wherever you look. So please look oh, for I, it. I forgot to ask, is there an audio version of this yet or have you not yes, done that yet? Yes, there is an audio version. And the audio version is super cool because we have actors read a lot of the undelivered speeches. So, oh, so nice. I, I do some of the narration, but but the audio is like a combination of a book and a podcast. We pull some archival audio and then we have amazing actors read. It's, I mean, you think you're listening to Eisenhower. You think you're listening to Hirohito. You think you're listening to John F. Kennedy. So the audio book of undelivered is really fun as well. You know, I got to tell you, uh, I'm not your agent, but when I hear you describe this book and then describe that audio version, I'm like, I'm like hearing like a uh, like a Netflix series or like a History Channel series about these speeches and uh, and uh, taking us back in time in history. So you may want to get on that.
<laughs> yes, Scott, as the, as the saying goes, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> I mean, you, you can see how, how fascinating this would be. Jeff, you've been a great guest. Yeah. You've been listening to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Get the book, Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History by Jeff Nussbaum, my friend Jeff. I'll see you in the green room sometime in the near future. Look forward to it, Scott. Thanks so much. Thank you. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.